right, everyone. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Hugh Becky. In this part two of the conversation, we continue to discuss specific potential impacts in Australia, similarities between Australia and Canada, as well as new technologies and production methods that may help limit impacts if glyphosate is no longer available for use. I hope you enjoy the second half, and thanks for listening. I, I, I found it really interesting because um, in Australia, uh, I think believe you mentioned it as, as dry seeding because the rains hadn't come yet. Um, so it was kind of that shift towards a, a drier situation, putting that seed in the ground when it's drier, waiting for the rains to come. But but seeing from the research that the yield potential was greater in that situation. And I'm not sure if you've been following some of Brian Barris's research on ultra early seeding in Western Canada, um, but it, yeah. to me, it certainly aligns with that thought. I mean, our risk is, is those cooler temperatures that you're putting it into um, and, right. and risk of, of, of damage to the crop and maybe, um, but his research has showed that greater yield stability um, greater yield potential as long as you're doing those management practices properly so I, I find it very interesting there's there's that little bit of alignment um, that comes from that and it's also you know like Western Canada farms are getting larger the average farm size for example here in Western Australia is 10,000 acres and so farmers have to get the crop in the ground as soon as they can and yeah they it is a leap of faith uh, seeding you know, traditionally they used to wait till the, the rains came and then they seeded, but you know, that may not be until the end of May, for example. And so they did find as they did in like Brian's study that, um, you know, it, it generally paid to put the crop in the ground, regardless of whether it was dry or not. And just, you know, uh, hope that the rains uh, came in a timely manner. And usually that's over time they found that indeed uh, drier early seeding here has, has paid off and, uh, and another risk that you don't have in Western Canada is um, frost can happen in September here when the wheat is just flowering, when it's very susceptible. And so uh, if you can seed early, it also reduces the risk of frost, the risk of frost uh, damage uh, uh, here in September uh, for wheat especially. And so that's another benefit. And so, yeah, the consensus was from, you know, the participants at the Sydney workshop is if we lose uh, these burn down herbicides, there'll be even that greater emphasis on getting the seed in the ground early uh, before the weeds come up. Uh, and then you don't have to do a burn down. You can just, um, uh, you still want to put down maybe a soil residual herbicide uh, like pyroxysulfone, uh, but um, you, you don't, a lot of times you don't have, you don't need to do a burn down. You can just seed and then, uh, uh, manage the weeds, any escapes uh, later in the season. How, how much earlier before seeding would they be putting that um, residual product on? You, you know, they, act, they actually put it down either at the time of seeding, so just ahead, you know, uh, they have these, you know, their farming equipment is so uh, big as they are in Western Canada, so they, they either put it down at the time of seeding, and then it's just incorporated by the sowing operation, or up to seven days before seeding. So, you know, it's about 50-50 in terms of what growers do, but it's, it's within basically a week of seeding uh, that they put. And it's commonly done, whether it's trifluralin or some of these uh, newer uh, soil residual pre-emergence herbicides. Uh, growers here really have moved from the post-emergence products to the pre-emergence products 
just because uh, the weeds here are resistant to most of the post-emergence herbicides. So, I, I, I mean, I can't help but think of when you, when you were discussing earlier that, you know, farming can be done in based on your models in, in Australia or where you studied it um, without glyphosate. However, the risk is we're seeing maybe a little bit less clean of fields, which to me then says, you know, are we in situations of increasing a weed seed bank? Um, and then I guess the next question that follows that is um, harvest weed seed management. Is that is that something that's taking a move in Australia? Can that be paralleled to what we're seeing in Canada? Um, what are your thoughts there? One of the three main focus areas going forward in terms of uh, integrated weed management are first of all, they're actively breeding for wheat competitive uh, crops, particularly wheat and barley. And I, th I think Australia is, is way ahead of everyone else in, tr in, in that regard in that they're, they're consciously uh, developing traits in wheat and barley, not just the public sector, but the private sector uh, that are more wheat competitive, and this is something that's you know quite novel. We, as wheat scientists, we've been talking about that for for many years. Uh, you know, usually yield, of course, is number one. Quality, disease, the disease package, etc. But now, so that's, and those will be available in, you know, within three to five years. Um, as you mentioned, harvest wheat seed control is now almost universally used here in Australia. Uh, you know, before they used to do the windrow burning or the, you know, the, they just burn the, the chaff rows after harvest, but uh, burning isn't, um, has been discouraged because of, because of the environmental impact. And so uh, now they're using techniques like chaff lining where after harvest they just, the chaff is in a, a narrow band and then they can either treat it with herbicides or even just burn that uh, chaff line or just let it rot. Uh, chaff tram lining, where you put the chaff behind the, the rear tires of the combine, a more hostile environment. And I know research is being done in Western Canada uh, on that and others. And of course, um, mechanical seed destruction, whether it's the integrated Harrington seed destructor, the seed terminator, uh, Redicop, of course, has uh, their system. And so this has been, uh, yeah, when you combine that with uh, competitive crops, soil residual very good soil residual herbicides here that still work and harvest weed seed control that really does help uh, uh, blunt uh, the or help mitigate uh, maybe perhaps losing or restricting uh, pesticides like glyphosate in the future it's certainly not a total replacement but uh, you know every little bit helps in terms of Keeping the weed seed bank low, which is a top priority here, um, you know, as 30 years ago uh, or 20 years ago, we used to talk about weed thresholds. In other words, herbicides, we advocate, you know, if you only have these many weeds in the spring, you don't have to bother spraying. Well, now we've sort of gone away from that worldwide, and now, you know, it's really a zero tolerance threshold for we don't want any weeds to to escape herbicide control and, and then enter the seed bank at the end of the season. Because, uh, you know, it just creates problems down the road in terms not only resistance, but uh, management. And so, yeah, that's still very much top of mind. Uh, and it should be in Canada as well, uh, that we don't want to, if we do lose these herbicides, especially glyphosate, how are we 
going to maintain low weed seed banks going forward. And, um, and that is still going to be a, a challenge, even with some of these non-herbicide tools like harvest weed seed management or competitive crops or soil residual herbicides. Um, particularly, for example, if we lose um, the, the ability to apply herbicides pre-harvest, um, which uh, impacts admittedly more the, the perennial weeds, but also some of the annual weeds uh, like wild oats as well. So. I was I was just thinking of that, the, you know, perennial weed control specifically um, seems to be um, something that, that obviously would become quite a significant issue um, for that, that pre and post harvest or, or... Yeah, especially for pulse crops, you know, um, I was talking to my my dad, who still lives on the farm in Davidson, and yeah, he said a lot of the pulse crops were a bit weedy in terms of perennial weeds, especially. And yeah, what you know, they really rely on pre-harvest uh, glyphosate to control these perennial weeds and other weeds and uh, in pulse crops. And so, unfortunately, I think pulse crops would be, you know, first uh, would be hit the hardest if we were to. Um, to lose glyphosate and especially in the pre-harvest window um, because like I say we'd probably lose you know products like uh, Reglone as well uh, or Paraquat Diquat if we lose glyphosate so it's not just glyphosate in this boat it's a whole bunch of herbicides uh, which uh, you know may may be re- least restricted but um, again it's all it's a bit speculation uh, we'll see what happens but uh, usually if you if you look at the European Union, that gives you a taste of what maybe the trends, the future trends are. And so it's certainly not encouraging if you look at some of the trends coming out of there in terms of uh, future uh, pesticide availability. It's uh, your comment on on pulses and, and you know, being a little bit less or maybe a lot less competitive. Uh, and in the paper, you mentioned um, potential trends of, of, you know, the amount of those kind of crops being seeded going down, um, which then to me, I'm thinking in, a, in, a, in an environment where we're looking to increase diversity of rotation and, and, and use different groups and use different crops to increase diversity to, to know that if we to lose glyphosate would mean that some crops would then be less desirable and, and almost be eliminated from rotation. It, it just seems counterproductive to the direction we're going. I know, and that's, you know, that would be a really unfortunate consequence if, uh, you know, if that were to happen. Uh, yeah, you know, pulse crops, you know, we can't overstate the benefits of, you know, soil benefits, the, the nitrogen benefits, etc. And so, um, yeah, we're in the same situation here where lupin production would certainly be uh, severely impacted. And, um, you know, we're already relying on uh, the cereal crops, wheat and barley here in Australia. And so, you know, crop diversity is even more of a challenge here in Australia than it is in Western Canada because of the even more limited soil moisture uh, conditions as well as the fragile soils. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, and that's why in this paper we argue, you know, we try and plead um, to the worldwide audience that, you know, you have to consider the broader consequences of if we were to lose uh, glyphosate because of the, you know, the stated uh, health concerns or, or environmental concerns, 
you know, what would be the impact of losing some of these herbicides on greenhouse gas emissions, for example, if we were to do more tillage? Uh, you know, what about carbon sequestration? Uh, you know, what about cropping diversity uh, like pulse crops and so forth? So there's a lot of, you know, unintended consequences which can arise um, from from losing some of these uh, important herb uh, pesticide tools. And so um, the discussion I would like to think would should be broadened um, to, you know, what is the impact not only in agriculture but uh, on on the environment and on rural rural communities in general. So there's there certainly would be a ripple effect. I I like the way um, your team phrased it in in the paper, um, and I'll phrase it here. There's always trade-offs. The short or long-term benefits and costs to society of every technology must be carefully weighed based on the available evidence. And that that statement stuck with me, and it just made me ask the question: Is is do we live in a society where that conversation can be what drives policy and discussion? Um, and I think that's a challenging question, and I don't think uh, either of us could answer right now, Hugh. I mean, unless you got an answer for me. That's the challenge that, or that's sort of our plea to, um, you know, the, the powers that be in, you know, in making these decisions, whether it's the courts or whether it's uh, politicians, um, you know, you have to think about, you know, what are the trade-offs uh, in any technology, whether it's uh, herbicides or what have you. And so um, it just, yeah, it's sort of a plea to, you know, uh, consider all of these factors before making any rash decision. So, I mean, back to the the, the pulse conversation of, of maybe pulses being less desirable in a non-glyphosate scenario due to their lack of competitive ability. Is there any discussion around intercropping with these crops to increase maybe that year or that system's weed competitiveness? Jeremy, that was one idea that was... Uh brought up during the, the Sydney workshop, and I know there's been a lot of good research done, whether it's at the University of Manitoba or others, looking at intercropping. And I think there is, yeah, that certainly is something that, you know, we've been researching intercropping for, you know, really decades and really hasn't been adopted at all. Uh, but I think it's funny, um, things always growers tend to adopt things when they have to, you know, when they're, when their backs against the wall, and that's the same with resistance management. Uh, you know, they'll keep doing what they can do as long as they can. And then if they're forced to, they'll, and that's human nature. And so this, uh, the same, um, as well, um, if, um, uh, that, um, you know, intercropping, I think, uh, we'll see what happens, but I think it's certainly one area that I think will, will be uh, looked at with uh, greater interest, um, especially if, if it can uh, help in terms of weed management in uh, pulse crops. And maybe continuing on that thread, as much as it may cause a loss of, of some acres in that crop type, um, the discussion of, of more hay and rotation was brought up in the paper as well. Um, that, that that could be a potential tool given market availability in the system to, to be a, a weed management tool? Yeah, you know, at the Sydney workshop, there was a general consensus is that, you know, if we lose some of these key herbicides or, or we're farming in a herbicide limited world in general, you know, there might be more mixed, mixed 
farming in terms of more livestock integrated with the system. Now, you know, for some growers, it's certainly not going to be an option. You know, they, they just don't, you know, like our farm, we, we used to have an infrastructure for that, but we don't anymore. You know, all the fences were torn down. And so, but for some, uh, for example, here in Australia, uh, we have seen a resurgence in the sheep industry, at least until this latest uh, uh, COVID situation and and, um, and good prices. And so uh, with greater integration of uh, livestock, uh, certainly um, uh, there's more of a market if, you know, if you have to cut the crop, um, whether for silage, barley silage, for example, um, or or cut it for hay, for feed, um, you know, you do take a lot of these weed seeds off the field, and it can really can be effective in terms of, um, you know, even one year to just driving down the, the weed seed bank, uh, whether it's wild oats or others, very dramatically. But again, it depends on markets, um, you know, the, the demand for feed, livestock feed, all that stuff. But it's certainly um, here in Australia in the last two years with the with the drought, uh, you know, the crops just weren't weren't going to produce any viable uh, grain yield, and so a lot of them were um, were cut for hay uh, earlier in the season, and um, and um, at least the farmer got some revenue off it. So in this in our case, uh, the haying or the or cutting the crop was due to the drought, not uh, due to uh, weed management. But uh, um, we do see, you know, in a herbicide limited world, that there would need to be more integration of livestock into the system uh, just to make it sustainable. In uh, in a scenario where you know there seems to also be pressure on the livestock side, it's uh, it, it's you know it becomes a pinch point of of the solution is in is also the problem in some scenarios you know yeah, the perceived you know, problem livestock, right um for example livestock ironically are getting a bad rap because of the methane emissions uh, related to the greenhouse gas and and others but um yeah so it's certainly you know farming uh, farming in a herbicide limited world is certainly um you know sort of a back to the future scenario that um you know, a lot of the farmers now, they grew up with glyphosate and they've known nothing other than a glyphosate-based farming, a conservation farming system. And it's been very, very, in my mind, it's been very sustainable in terms of soil health and in terms of environmental benefits and, of course, profitability. And so, but, um, you know, we're living in a, a world now where, you know, most of the population are live in cities. Uh, they have no connection to the farm. And that's getting, you know, that disconnect is increasing over time. And so, you know, what we may view as critical in agriculture, the, the farm, cons the average farm, con average consumer, urban consumer, uh, they just view pesticides as being bad, period. And, you know, and so it's going to always be a challenge in the agricultural sector to, to try and, you know, educate consumers uh, as best we can about, you know, why we we farm the way we do, why these products are are needed for sustainable agriculture, and um, you know, I think if we need more of that conversation, whether it's in even at a younger age through the uh, through the, through the uh, school system, uh, the in, uh, whether it's undergraduate or even in the high school system, you know that 
uh, especially in the cities where they really don't know how we produce our food. This, this, this whole challenge um, and, and then the direction of research required for this challenge sounds like a, a multifaceted challenge with, with a lot of different um, research experts from different areas that have to really come together to find a solution to this. Um, is this are you seeing this in in Western Australia and Australia? Um, is this something that you know we in Canada, from from your experience in Canada, have the capacity to do? I mean, what direction, from your perspective, um, should we really be heading towards? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, this will take time to you know to plan and develop. Uh, there'll be short term research priorities, for example. You know, three year. You know, what are the immediate uh, alternatives to glyphosate, for example, if we use that as an example, you know, alternative, what alternative herbicides can we use? Um, so what immediate tactics can we use to, to try and mitigate the loss? And then some longer term studies looking at various integrated strategies and, uh, you know, more of a farming systems level. And I think actually in Western Canada, um, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, there's been a lot of good, good research done already in that in that regard in terms of integrated wheat management, whether it was by Bob Blackshaw, used to be at Lethbridge, or Neil Harker at Lacombe, uh, or John Adonovan. You know, these were pioneers in integrated wheat management, especially in Alberta. And so there's a lot of good research that has already been done in terms of farming with limited herbicide use, judicious herbicide use. Um, and again, like you, like we discussed, it depends on cropping diversity. It depends upon trying to integrate all of these little little hammers we call them together uh, to create synergies that can use be used with very targeted herbicide use. And so, um, there are some challenges, environmental challenges, or or you know just uh, logist logistical challenges. You know farms are getting bigger like we discussed and you know the you know it has to be it has to the any recommendations or alternatives have to fit in with existing systems be convenient relatively simple effective and so that's it is going to be a challenge but it, yes it does require you know collaborative teams uh getting together not just weed scientists but you know uh, ag economists uh getting together with um, you know, soil scientists, uh, but you know the the other disciplines, pathology and entomology, uh, and you know we we do see that we have seen that in the past, but I think there'll be more of a shift towards that these multidisciplinary uh, team approaches to try and tackle this this uh, quite an immense challenge. So if I'm <clears throat> a progressive farmer in in Western Canada or or say Australia and um, I'm, I'm looking to do what's best for the future of my farm. You know, how do I perceive this problem right now? And, and, you know, how should I be looking at it for the future of my farm? And I know that's a big question, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious of your, your perspective on that. You've worked in agriculture for many years in, in different parts of the world, and, and uh, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, if I was, uh, say, a farmer here, you know, there's certainly... Uh, keeping up to date with developments they know they actually have you know the consensus here is that they'll probably lose glyphosate now we don't know but um you know they see what's happening in europe and um 
And, you know, it's a bit frustrating because right now they can't really make any changes because, um, you know, they are moving, as we mentioned, towards earlier seeding, and that's helping to mitigate, you know, maybe a, not having to apply a, a burn-down uh, application. Um, but, you know, like we said here in, in Australia, they rely on the soil residual herbicides, and so we certainly don't want to lose those. So, again, that's they can't really think about dropping that right now. They are hoping, though, that these new technologies, like especially competitive uh, crop varieties, especially wheat and barley, um, they'll have access to that. So that's one of their big hopes. Uh, and that's that'll be a reality in, you know, two, three, four years. And um, and again, the relying, they'll, growers are using some form of harvest weed seed management. Now it's not effective against some of our weeds like brome grass, which, which tends to shatter early. Um, but, you know, any, one thing I've admired here in Western Australia is, is farmers are early adopters of any technology. Um, farmers here are generally very profitable. And if there's a technology that'll, that they think will fit into their system, and you know they're willing to risk using it to if it will uh, grow their enterprise and so uh, any any uh, way that they can they can farm with you know whether it's less less herbicides or whatnot they'll they'll adopt it uh, if it's if it's available if they think it works uh, then um, they'll they'll give it a shot but um, again it's more of a wait and see it wait and see approach right now because uh, um, you know these are a lot of these are external factors uh, whether it's Western Canada or Australia uh, you know things what things happen what's decided in at the European uh, Parliament in Brussels you know um, we can't control and so they're just it's more of a reactive it'll be more of a reactive than a proactive uh, approach uh, but um, uh, you know, I'm so optimistic that at the end of the day, uh, you know, we'll be able to uh, farm. Um, uh, maybe it might be a bit more complicated, but hopefully it'll be um, just as profitable. It's a it's a, it's a rather complex problem, um, and and I mean, I'm sure we could sit here and chat for another hour, but Hugh, what, um, I'll let you go. And I just one more question: Is there anything you know that we didn't cover that you that you'd want to make sure um, you say to anyone listening before we before we take off? Uh, just generally that you know, as weed scientists, um, and you know, Neil Harker, for example, who who retired from agriculture and agri-food Canada in Lacombe after thirty years, you know, he was a real pioneer in integrated weed management and. Uh, and a mentor of mine, as well as Bob Blackshaw. And, you know, we've always been preaching about the need to to depend less on herbicides in general, because, you know, whether it's revoking social license, whether it's herbicide resistance or grain buyer demands, uh, you know, the trend I think is clear that we'll have to depend less on pesticides in general in the future. And, uh, and so um, this is, I think, is going to be uh, maybe accelerated by external factors as we've discussed. So just, um, I think uh, those in the industry should be aware that, um, you know, this is the trend and it's not likely to, uh, to change. 
Well, again, Hugh, thank you for the time. This has been enlightening for me. I'm sure anyone who's listening is going to get a lot of value from this. So um, enjoy the rest of your day because I, I know it's bright and early for you over there. So uh, again, thank you, Hugh, and, and I'm sure we'll chat soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.